Just glad to be together with you. Glad to be here. Uh, glad to invite you to grab your Bible, open that, pull it out. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, ushers are coming down the aisle right now. Want you to have the written page in, in front of you. We believe uh, that the Word of God is powerful, so we always open our Bible and we always preach from the Bible, and it's an amazing thing. If you're uh, new or visiting River West, welcome. We're in a series called Living Church. And what we're doing is we're looking at seven traits that always mark a healthy living church. And today we're um, in trait five that we've done Jesus, gospel, gratitude, prayer. Last week, Guy introduced us to unity. And today we'll do unity part two. And we're going to be in the book of Ephesians chapter four. And I want to begin today by talking to you actually about the new public health crisis of the digital age, okay? And actually, I, I wonder if you're going to be able to figure out what this is as I'm describing it to you. Health workers across the United States are growing increasingly concerned at the rapid rise of this condition. Today, over 40% of Americans report that they're suffering at some level from it, and research is showing that it can have serious health effects. As detrimental to your lifespan as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, okay? Yeah, you don't even know what it is yet, but it's bad, okay? People who suffer from this condition are more likely to become ill, experience memory loss, high blood pressure, especially among the elderly, even strokes. What is it? Loneliness. Loneliness. Can you believe that? It's become such an epidemic that health workers are actually considering it now a major health crisis in our country. Our former uh, Surgeon General, a man named Vivek Murthy, wrote a piece in the Harvard Business Review where he said, loneliness is an epidemic in our age. And even though we live in the most technologically connected world in the history of our society, we are more disconnected from one another than we've ever been. Lonely, isolated. In the 1960s and 1970s, social scientists and philosophers coined a term that they called the global village, where they predicted that through technology, there would become a global community where people around the globe would become more deeply connected than ever through technology. And what's actually happened in the last 40 years is precisely the opposite. We become less connected, more isolated, more lonely. The only thing that human beings are connected to today is a digital screen right? And it's hurting our health. I heard a story this week about a, a Hollywood actress who died in her home and she was so isolated that no one found her body in Beverly Hills in her home for one year. One year. I know. Can you believe that? A neighbor finally noticed cobwebs on the front door and the mail was turning yellow. So the neighbor, who was also an actress, had reached her hand through a broken window, let herself in, found her way through the house and found this woman's body upstairs by a heater that was still turned on and it was literally mummified. And the only light that was turned on in the entire house was the computer screen 
that had been on for a year. This woman had no family, no friends, no church community. The only connection she had with human beings happened through the internet and through Facebook with ex-fans, but she died and no one knew it for a year. We're becoming more isolated than ever and loneliness and rampant. And River West, it's not just out there. It's right here in our own community. It's right here in our church, right here in our church. The elders went away. Guy mentioned this last week. We went away and we prayed. We had 550 prayer cards, which I brought just so you can see what 550 prayer cards look like. And one of the things that happened while we were away is we we started to realize there are some themes. And even though people, individuals, feel disconnected from one another, the reality is we are more connected than we realize And we started praying through these cards. And uh, don't worry, I'm not going to hand these out. These are private. I I just brought them to the most public place in Lake Oswego. But anyway, I brought these and... What we discovered, we would pray and, and then we would, we would kind of pull the, the group and we'd say, hey, what percentage of the prayer cards that you had involved people who are hurting at work? And we just kind of monitored that. What are the themes? And we just went theme by theme and, and we realized there are some big ones, some common themes. So, for example, let's say that I asked this section of the church right here to stand. I'm not going to ask you to stand. But let's say I asked you to stand. I could say to the church, that group of people right there represents in percentage the number of people in our church who are hurting over a loved one who has walked away from Jesus Christ. A sibling or a child or a parent. That's the number of people in our church who are aching about that, praying about it. Can you believe that? And maybe you don't even realize there are people right next to you hurting in the same way. Let's say I asked this section of people to stand. I could say to you, this is the percentage of people who are experiencing hurt and major brokenness in their marriage. It's not this specific group of people, okay? But, but that represents what's happening in our church, and maybe you feel like you're alone in that. But you're not. If I asked this group of people right over here to stand, I could say to you, this is the percentage of people in our church who literally wrote on their prayer card, I'm lonely. I'm isolated. I feel disconnected. I need a place where I belong. River West, there may be no word in our seven words that's more timely for our world in this age than the word unity. Unity. I believe that God is calling our church, River West Church, to become this beautiful, united community that would draw in people from our, from our city who are feeling disconnected and dislocated and they're broken and they're lonely and they're grieving and they feel lost. And I believe that our church is supposed to be a church that's so united in beautiful relationships that it would draw people in and they would realize they're not alone. They have a place where they belong. Amen. Do you know it will be, it will be the quality of our relationships that will be the difference? It will be the way that we do relationships one to another that will be this prophetic thing in our community that says, you are welcome here. Come and be a part of what God is doing. 
The Apostle Paul believed that. He wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 4. Would you turn with me now there? This morning is the practical sermon. This morning is the sermon when we talk about unity where we're going to talk about our relationships. Because what Paul's going to teach us this morning is when the rubber meets the road, if you want to boil down unity, it boils down to the quality of our relationships. It's very practical. Will you look at it with me? Ephesians 4. Today our text is 1 through 6. Paul wrote, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul says, unity is deeply practical. Look at this list of traits that cultivate unity in a community. Today, I'm going to ask you the question, are you helping to contribute to relationships in our church that are beautiful and united? Today is the house sermon. How do we do this? You know, Ephesians 4 verse 1 is a pivotal verse in the book of Ephesians. Scholars call it the hinge verse. It's the hinge on which the entire letter turns. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all high-level theology. And then you get to Ephesians 4 verse 1 and suddenly, like a hinge, there's a turn and suddenly Paul goes from high doctrine, high theology to deeply practical, incredibly helpful, concrete instruction and it just happens on a pivot. You've noticed it. You've read Ephesians and you've thought, man, one through three is all this beautiful theology about what God has done in Christ to form the church. And then suddenly we get to 4.1 and Paul says, now take all of that beauty, all of that theology, and here's how you live it out. And suddenly you get to chapter four, verse one, and you get the very first command in the book of Ephesians. And what does Paul say? He says, I urge you, I urge you, Walk in a manner. As a church, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And what does that look like? What's, what is trait number one? When Paul thinks of, well, how would a church function in the world in a way where God is seen, God gets glory? Trait number one for Paul is unity. It's unity. Do you see that? He says, he says I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Look at verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. You see the pattern developing? One, 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 unity, unity. Paul says the first quality of a church that's operating in the world in a manner worthy of the high calling of God is unity. It's like the distinctive that sets us apart. And in a world where people feel lonely and dislocated, the unity of the church can be beautiful. It can be like a salve that draws people in. That's why Paul was so urgent. He felt this matter of utmost urgency when he said, be eager to maintain that. Did you see that in verse three? Eager. That word, 
It's actually strong. It's the strongest Greek word in the text, and it's a little hard to translate. The word means uh, it has a sense of haste to it or crisis. It's like Paul saying, this is critical. We should be, we should be urgent about this. We should be eager. Think of all the things that you're eager for in your life. Are you eager to cultivate unity in the church? The word combines passion and haste. It was the word that they used in the New Testament most to describe when you want to get somewhere quickly. You miss someone and you want to be with them. So Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in verse chapter 2. He said, but since we were torn away from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Do you know that feeling when you're trying to get to a loved one and you can't get there fast enough? That's what Paul's talking about. My romantic relationship with Kathy Williams began with a teary phone call. She called me the summer of my sophomore year from California. She had gone to California for the summer to be an intern at a church, and she called me. And when she called me this day, we were still friends. I was in the friend zone, which is a horrible place to be, by the way. It's horrible. And I secretly loved her. I, I, I was digging her really, really hard. And she, she doesn't admit it even to this day, but she was digging me too. But anyway, that's another thing. So... <laughs> She called me, and uh, this was back in the day of landlines. So if you don't know what that is, look it up, Google it. But she, I was the third person she called, okay? She called two girlfriends. The first girlfriend was not there, no answer. The second girlfriend was not there, no answer. Thank you, God. There's a God. He loves us, okay? And then she called me, and I answered the phone, right? And I said, and I said, hello. And she said, hey, Adam, this is Kathy Williams. And I said, Kathy, how are you doing? And then she just started weeping. Oh, I'm so sad. It's been so hard. I'm so lonely. You know, this is just some, and something bad had happened. And she was like, is there any chance you would come to California and visit me? And I said, let me think about it. Yes. <laughs> Right? I'll think about it. Yes. Okay. I bought a plane ticket. Can I tell you something? That was the longest plane ride I have ever been on. I could not wait to get to Merced, California. And no one has ever said that in the history of California. I could not wait to get there, right? And Paul says, take that feeling where you're just eager. You want it so badly. And he says, well, now wait a minute. What, do you apply that to unity in the church? Is it something that is so important to you that you literally are passionate about being a part of the nurturing of it, contributing to it? Paul says, oh, unity, it's so important in an isolated world. This morning, we're going to answer three questions together from this text. All three are important. The first question we're going to answer is, what kind of unity are we talking about? Because there's actually different kinds of unity in our world. And I don't know about you, but if I'm going to get eager about something, I want to know what it is I'm supposed to be eager about. What kind of unity? The second question we're going to answer is, how is it cultivated in a local church family? This is where we're, it's going to get super practical. That's verse 2. And the third question we're going to answer together is, why does it matter? Who cares? Who cares? And then we're going to, so we're going to work through all those. And then at the end, I'm going to give you one extremely practical thing that I want you to do. And you can do it 
on your way to take communion this morning. So let's take question one. What kind of unity is Paul talking about? Well, he tells us in verse three that it's a unity of the spirit. Did you see that? Every word in the Bible matters. Nothing's a throwaway. And the unity that Paul's talking about here is a unity of the spirit. But you say, well, what does that mean? I think the very first thing we got to understand is this is a unity that human beings cannot create. This is a unity that's supernatural. It's miraculous. It's something that only God can create and he creates it through the work of his Holy Spirit. Now, human beings, we're always trying to create unity because I think we long for unity. So we'll try to fabricate unity in all kinds of ways in our world. And we'll try to unite around lots of things but they're always temporary. They're always a little bit shallow. We'll unite around a sports team. We'll unite around a common hobby. We'll unite around a common hurt or an identity marker or a social justice issue. And you'll see it if you pay attention, people longing to unite around something. But one of the things you'll notice is it never lasts. It's always skin deep and there's nothing about it that's supernatural. But the unity that Paul's talking about is a unity of the Holy Spirit. It's a unity that God's spirit creates as he works in the heart of individual men and women. He begins to open their hearts and he draws them into relationship with a God who himself exists in relational unity. Did you know that? Our unity is the result of the unity of a relational God. I wonder if you noticed in verses four to six, that the Trinity shows up there. Did you see that? Let me read it to you again. We notice the word one, it's repeated seven times, but did you find the Trinity? Paul says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, that's Jesus Christ. Paul's always calls Christ Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. It's a lot of alls. We'll come back to that. That's actually important. We'll see that at the end. But did you see the Trinity? Paul says there's, there's one spirit, verse four. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ, verse five. There's one God and Father, verse six. And then what Paul does is he takes the other four ones and he, and he lets you realize each of those is somehow connected to our relationship with each of the persons of the Trinity. So we become one body as we're connected to the one spirit. We have one faith, one hope, one baptism through our relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we become one family under the headship of our God and Father, Creator, who's one. It's so beautiful. Paul wants the church to realize unity is just an outflow of the unity of our God. It happens as we connect with God. It happens as the Holy Spirit draws us to God. It doesn't happen if we try to fabricate unity. So let me put it like this. We don't create unity by looking at each other we actually experience unity by fixing our eyes on God. Isn't that great? A.W. Tozer wrote in his book, The Pursuit of God. Maybe you've read this book. I love this quote. I've got it on the screen. He said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? 
Why would you ever try to tune 100 pianos at the same time? I don't know. But anyway, it's a great illustration, all right? He says they're tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could ever possibly be were they to become unity conscience and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. I love that. Tozer was reading Ephesians 4, and he realized, how does unity happen? It's a miracle, and it happens as the Spirit draws us to God in Christ, and suddenly we become united with one another, despite our differences. So beautiful. Now, we, we were united around a common truth. Truth is a part of it. So yes, we have common convictions, but, but even the way that we experience truth happens as the Holy Spirit opens our hearts, opens the eyes of our hearts to see the beauty of Jesus. And you know what? That's happening in this sanctuary every Sunday when we gather. It's always happening. The Spirit is at work. My favorite prayer card that I prayed over on the retreat was a person who's only been to the church for about two months, I asked this person for permission to talk anonymously about this card. The person said, I've, I've been coming to your church for about two months. I have no idea how I started coming. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I believe. But I know this, every single Sunday, something happens to me. And they said, it, it feels like I'm, something's washing over me. Sometimes it happens in a song. Sometimes it happens in a sermon. Sometimes it happens in a prayer. But it always feels the same. It feels like this flooding, washing, cleansing type of an experience. And the person said, I have no idea what's happening to me. I don't know what to pray for. And I thought, I know what to pray for. (laughs) That's the Holy Spirit at work on a human heart, beginning the process of what we call regeneration, where our heart is softened and open, and you begin to realize Jesus is Lord and River West. When that happens, individual people from every tribe and tongue and nation become not only connected to Jesus Christ, but they become connected to one another in a beautiful unity of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? That's the kind of unity that we're called to cultivate. So the second question is, how? How do we do it? And I hope that you're wondering, what am I supposed to do? Paul wants to say, here's here's your role, individual brother or sister. You have a part to play. How does unity get cultivated in our church? Well, it's verse 2, the most practical verse in the passage. He says, yeah, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, but here's what that looks like. Five traits with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We just take a minute and look over that verse. There's five traits there, humility, gentleness, patience, what we call forbearance, which basically means putting up with people, super practical, and love. And it's an amazing list. Every time I read that list, I'm like, I'm so thankful. But can you think about this? Ask yourself the question, why did Paul choose those five words? Because he could have chosen a lot of words. 
He could have chosen happiness or laughter or excitement, but he chose humility and gentleness and forbearance and patience. And I love this because you know what it tells me? Paul's a realist. He understands unity is hard work. It's hard work. You're going to have to be humble and gentle. You're going to have to put up with people. I'm so glad Paul put that in there. You're going to have to put up with people because you know what? That means there's room for me in community because I'm hard to put up with. And so are you just to make it balanced, fair and balanced, (laughs) right? We're human beings. We're hard to put up with. I love that. There's, when you're in a community with perfect people, it doesn't take any work. But all the other communities where everyone's broken and flawed and perfect, those are the communities where unity is a struggle. And so Paul takes these traits, and they're really they're the fruit of the Spirit, and he says, these are the things that you use to maintain unity. Did you notice he said, be eager to maintain unity. We don't create it, but we maintain it. We cultivate it, and the way we cultivate it is by periodically looking at words like this and and then taking a look inside and saying, how am I doing? The first two words go together. I'll put them back on the screen for you. Humility and gentleness, those go together. Those are what I call the inward graces. So first you look in and you say, how am I doing? Humility is a Greek word. It's actually, it's two smaller Greek words that it's lowliness and mind. So the word means to be lowly of mind. And it was a way of saying, when I look out at other people, I view them as more significant than myself. Paul said that in Philippians 2. In humility, look look at other people as more significant than yourselves. That's humility. It's It's super powerful for creating unity. You know, the Greeks hated humility. It never showed up on their list of traits. They actually viewed it as a, as a flaw in your character. And it wasn't until Jesus came onto the scene and modeled this beautiful humility, and then the church started imitating Jesus, that suddenly humility became a virtue in the Greco-Roman world. Amazing. And then you pair that with gentleness. The word gentleness is, was what they used to describe a domesticated animal not cats or puppies, but they domesticated like oxen. These were, these were work animals. So when they talk about gentleness, they're not talking about weakness. They're actually talking about strength that has been harnessed. I love that. How do you create un- unity in your relationships? By not always having to assert yourself or take control or have your agenda met. There's this strength that's under control and it looks like gentleness, and it's beautiful, right? Those are the first two. Then the second three, they all go together. Patience, forbearance, and love, those are the outward graces. Those are the things we practice in relationship with real people. You can't practice patience unless you're in community with people. You can't put up with someone unless you actually are spending time with them. And so Pastor Eric and I were talking this week, and, and it was neat. We were reflecting on the fact that if I never have to repent of being impatient, it probably means I'm not really in community, you know? 
probably means I don't really know anyone. If I never have to, if I never feel bad about have, that, I, that I have to put up with someone, it means I'm probably not really in relationships with them. But once you're actually in community, these are things that you have to practice, and it's actually kind of a joy to do it. So I, used, I beat myself up a lot. I walk out of a social situation. I'm like, man, I was so arrogant in that, and I kind of feel bad about it. But now, you know what's happening? I'm actually starting to feel good about it because I'm like, this is me giving you an opportunity to practice forbearance. <laughs> I'm like, I'm helping you become more like Jesus. So there you go. It's, just, it's, it's a way to practice, right? We got to be in real relationships with real people. And you know what? It's hard work. Don't give up. Don't give up. The thing that breaks my heart more than anything as a pastor is that people give up on the church all the time. And the reason they give up is because community is really hard. It's hard. Maybe you are sitting here today and you're thinking, I want to give up on the church. It's hard. I get it. Maybe you know someone who's walked away. They walked away because relationships were painful. They gave up. Don't let them leave. Go after them and say, yes, it's hard, but it's so important. Unity, that hard work that we take to cultivate these relationships, God will use that. Your efforts will pay off. Amen, River West. Let's not give up on the church. That's how we do it. Okay, finally, the final question is, why does it matter? If I'm going to devote my life to something, I want to know why. And you know what? Paul, Paul hints at it here in verse 6. I, I told you to note this, the way Paul describes God the Father. Will you look at it with me again? Here's what he says. He says, God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So what's the point of this flourish of alls? You know, it's interesting, in the book of Ephesians, the word that's repeated more than any other word is the word all. It's almost like Ephesians gives us a theology of all. And, and it's always related to God the Father. And what I think Paul's doing here is he's saying, God, as, as the creator of all things, is sovereign. And that means that everything in creation finds its purpose and it's also held together under the sovereign control of God. But here's the problem. We're living in a world where sin has created disintegration. Things are broken. There's, people are disconnected. There's relationships that are, have become irreconciled. So there's all this division and separation and discord. And yet somehow we're supposed to understand God as being in all and through all and over all. How does it work? Well, Paul wants to say the key is to understand God's purpose for the church. This is where the church comes in, and this is where our unity is so important. So let me show you. I'm going to trace a few verses here in Ephesians. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1 in verses 9 and 10, where Paul's going to tell us what, are the, what is the eternal purpose of God. By the way, if you have a low view of church, read Ephesians and you'll immediately have a high view of church because it's the church book. It's the church book. Look what he says. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 9. This is what God's doing. He's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite what? 
all things, to unite all things in him, that's in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That's God's eternal purpose because the world has been destroyed by sin. That's why Paul says creation is groaning for the return of Christ, groaning to be reconciled, groaning to be healed, groaning to be united. And Paul says this is actually God's eternal plan. Well, how is he going to do it? Well, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to set a new king on the throne. So now turn to chapter 2. We're going to get a, a new king who's a perfect king who's going to rule perfectly with absolute sovereign power. And he's going to rule through his death and his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, actually, nope, I lied. The end of Ephesians 1, starting in verse 20. This is what God has done. He's worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We get it, Paul. All and all, right? Paul says, here's what God does. He, he lifts up a new king. And that new king has a church, his body, that's connected to him. And suddenly the church comes into view. We get seeing Jesus on the throne ruling over all things. But what does the church have to do with it? And what does unity in the church have to do with it? Well, then we turn to chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And this is like the punchline. This is God's plan to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Look at this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Have you ever read that verse? Have you ever described the church like that? Just look at it. What that tells me is that when God wants to show off in heaven, the thing that he draws attention to is the church. That's astounding. When God wants angels to have their breath taken away by his manifold wisdom, the thing that he lifts up is the reconciled people of God, the church. Amazing. And actually, those rulers and authorities also include the devil. And so when God wants to put it into the face of the devil, what he lifts up is the church and the manifold wisdom of the unity. The church, River West, is like an outpost in a broken world, an outpost of unity and it's prophetic. It's, it's out there in a, in a world that's broken and divided and disintegrated. People are hurting, but they look at this group of people who are experiencing supernatural unity, and it draws them in, even if they're not willing to admit it. Paul says, why does the church matter? Why does unity matter? Why should we never give up? Why should we work and be eager to cultivate? Because that unity is what God uses to draw in the lonely and the broken, people who are giving up, people who feel despair, 
God says it will be this beautiful, united bride of Christ that will change a fallen world. Now, I don't know about you, but I can get eager about that. I can get eager about that. I can get excited about that. I can work towards that, and I hope that you can too. I hope you can. We're part of something amazing, River West. We really are. God is here. He's at work. And this morning, we're going to go to the table. And I told you I'm going to give you something practical to do. And it comes from that list of five traits. Here's what I want you to do this morning as you walk to the table. I want you to think about your life and your relationships in our church. And start on the inside and ask the question, how am I doing with humility and gentleness? Is there anything I need to repent of? Jesus died for my sins. Is there anything that this morning I need to cast off and turn over to Christ? And then look outward and think of real relationships. Is there a relationship where I've not been patient, where I've not been long-suffering, where I've not been loving? And ask for forgiveness and pray, Jesus, by your grace, give me help. I want to be a part of nurturing unity in our church. And then you go to the table and And you take in your hands these representations of the power of God to forgive our sins and to give us new life. And it's so practical. And you could do that every single week as you go to the table. I hope you will. Will you bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. Colin is going to come and lead us in worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, this amazing passage that's so practical is so concrete. We know exactly what we're supposed to do today. And we pray now simply for your grace and your help to do it. I want to pray, Lord, today for anyone who has come who feels lonely. I pray they would know, Father, through this word and through our time together that they belong here. This is a community of belonging. Father, I pray for your work, the work of your spirit in our midst as you wash over human hearts. We would be united. Remind us that in a moment we're going to go to the table together and we're going to experience deep, deep unity simply through a meal that we'll share. Oh, I wish we could sit around a table and and look at one another as we eat it and, and share stories of your grace. But... Nevertheless, we will be so united in these coming moments. Thank you, Lord, for it. Speak to our hearts as we go to the table, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.